Good morning. Um, you know, it's exciting. I, always, I love saying this. Jesus is going to come back again. Isn't that amazing? He'll come back again, and uh, God will create a new heaven and a new earth. It's quite powerful. The, um, the modern understanding... Uh, I've got water down there, and that sets up mine. I'll take it. Take two. The, um, the modern understanding is that we all get saved so we can go to heaven. That's not the Jewish understanding. The Jewish understanding was that God would always create a new heaven and a new earth in which man would rule as they were intended to rule under God. That's a little, that's a little drop right there where you guys can think about it and stir through it. And maybe one day, um, I might actually preach on that. Just give you a bit of a theological understanding of what that looks like. In the meantime, I'm doing a, a series um, which, after discussing with Ben... Um, I'm actually not going to get through in two weeks. It's just too, it's too in-depth, especially what I'm going to talk on today. Um, so what we decided to do, or he decided to do, is that next week I'm away. Ben's going to pick up part of this, um, and, and then I'll come back and finish it off um, the, the following week. Is that correct, Ben? That was agreed upon? Um, so it gives me an opportunity to actually spend some time, chunky portion of time in Scripture, going through quite a, a, an in-depth um, case study of, of what we're going to talk on today. So I should have kept my last point from last week for today because they actually go together quite well. Um, so just to recap on the last point of what I spoke on last week is, is this, is that, is that Jesus, that he became our sin to, in order to, and became our curse, and, and God through him condemned sin. And, and what I spoke of is, is is saying that sin is not an action, but it's a condition. You know what I'm saying? It's not a symptom. Like, we look at sin as a symptom. And, and like, sneezing is a symptom of a condition. When you, when you sneeze or cough, or you have a, a, a half fever, or, or you have um, any other type of symptom that, that, that manifests, its, manifests itself externally or physically, it's a condition, it's, it's, sorry, it's a sign and a symptom that there's an underlying condition. The, 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 these symptoms the Bible calls acts of the flesh from the condition of sin. And as long as we in the Western church um, with, with reformed evangelical views understand sin as, a, as, an, as, as symptoms, we'll, we will never be free of it. Okay? So last week I spoke, the last point was that Jesus condemned sin, and I, I began to speak about the fact that he condemned it by actually removing it from us. He, he removed the condition that we inherited, and then he gave us a new nature, or, a new, we, or we became a new creation. Like That's a powerful reality that I, I can tell you right now, much of the Western church does not understand that. We don't have an understanding of the fact that the nature of sin was removed, and a new nature was given to us. And because of that, we, we, we have preachers, we have teachers, we have pastors, we have prophets, we have evangelists that all want to deal with the symptoms. And so our preaching is all towards dealing with the symptoms. Stop doing. Don't be. Why are you doing this? All our counseling sessions are all around trying to get people to stop doing things. 
rather than giving them an understanding and helping them to come to a revelation of the fact that that condition was removed, and because it was removed, they no longer have to live like that. Now, in, in, throughout this preaching and teaching, and it should happen when anyone ever preaches and teaches, is that many questions will begin to rise. Many scriptures will come to mind where you can go, yes, but what about this? And I remember when we first started preaching this, we would always have people coming and saying, yes, but this text says that, now explain it to me. And I would wonderfully always say to them, I will not give you the explanation or do you the favor of explaining it to you until you yourself have gone away, you have searched that text out and text surrounding it, and then you come back with a comprehensive argument about what we're about to discuss. Because I'm not here for you to turn around and say, this scripture says that, now you tell me. This scripture says that, now you tell me. I'm not there to spoon feed a Christian. I'm there to bring forward what I believe is revelation from my own study. To spark in you questions to go and study yourself. Go and get a concordance. Look at the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic. Go and find out what it means and build up an argument for what you're about to approach me on. And then we can have an educated discussion about this. For the simple reason of not to point out who's right and who's wrong, but to find truth so that we find freedom. You see, we always want to argue about who's right and wrong. That's not the argument. Jesus didn't argue about that. Jesus actually did not engage in that kind of argument with the Pharisees. He dropped the bomb of truth. They all freaked out. He walked away because he, he, he wasn't cared about the argument, and they wanted to kill him for it. That's the same as today. Preachers drop truth. It's against the natural grain of what we've always believed to be true, and then we want to kill that person. Not physically, but kill them through social media or, or expel them from the churches or, or, or t- uh, um, tell people that they're heretics and they don't know what they're talking about because they don't have certificates on their wall. Jesus didn't have a certificate on his wall that says, I had gone through the Pharisaical school of Gamaliel, which Paul did have, by the way. So it's there to spark off a thought pattern for you to get hungry to actually want to go and search out truth for your own freedom and your own relationship with God. See, I don't read the scriptures so that I can teach you. I know, I'm sorry about that. I don't read the scriptures so I can argue with you. I don't read the scriptures so I can be clever. In actual fact, the only reason, there's only one reason why I read the scriptures. And it's simply this, so that I can find the word of God in that text and therefore walk in a greater relationship with my father. It's got nothing to do with any of you, actually. It's got nothing to do with you, my preaching, teaching, writing books, writing this, this manual. Couldn't care less about that. It's so that I can walk in a relationship with God. And this manual was actually put together because I came into such freedom myself in my relationship with my father that I decided to put it down on paper so that other people can also possibly find that same relationship and freedom. And that is the reason why I stand up here preaching today is simply to give you a revelation of who God is and how great he is. Because I think we've got this warped understanding of an incredibly great God and Father. So he condemned sin by removing it from us. He condemned the nature of it. And I've got a whole lot of texts in this manual which I'll make available to the leaders of this church and they can distribute as they like. But I want to get onto an item today which is the, the next part of that he removes sin. And it is this. I've gone past it. Which is this. <laughs> That he gave us a new nature. I've titled it, Out with the Old, In with the New. Now, in order to do this, and in the manual, I've actually got Romans 1 to 4, uh, Romans, sorry, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. 
However, as I was looking at this, and I said to Ben last week, I think that this one topic alone is one sermon. I'm not going to try and go through two or three points today. I'm actually going to go through one point, which is the fact that he removed the old nature, which we spoke about last week. That is combined with today's one, and he's now given us a new nature. In order to put those two together and build up a good comprehensive argument, I'm actually going to read through a couple chapters, line by line, of the texts out of the book of Romans. Book of Romans written by Paul a letter to a Roman church, as I said, uh, sorry, written, a letter written to the church in Rome, as I said last week, which was made up of a few groups of people. Jewish people, people who had believed in Jesus, and everybody else that was listening in. Paul had no idea, had never visited them when he wrote the book, when he wrote the letter, sorry. He had written a letter because someone had come and spoken to him about what was going on there. So he writes a letter to three different groups of people. And you'll see as he jumps, if you read through the book of Romans, you'll see how Paul jumps from one group to the next, building up an argument, probably one of the most theological books in, 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 the, in the scriptures. So I'm going to start in chapter 5. I'm going to read from the ESV version. We're going to read line upon line and build up this incredible argument. And I think that the scripture itself will speak for itself, but I will give some uh, commentary on it. Um, let's start in chapter 5, verse 12. If ever you want to follow me in your Bibles, you're welcome to do so. He says here, therefore, just as sin, now when I mention the word sin, I want you to take away actions and put condition. So I might even throw that in there. Just give me some poetic license, okay? Therefore, just as the condition of sin came into the world through one man, who we know as Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all, and, the, and this, this ESV version says, because all sinned, the correct translation is because all were in sin. You, understand? you see how we, a Bible interpreter can slant it in one direction. You know what I mean? It's, it's very, very key that we go back to the original writings to find out what is, what, what's actually being said here, right? For all sin, sorry, for sin indeed, from verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now, you know that he's speaking to a, a group of um, Jewish people here as well. He's now bringing, and bringing them into, because the Jews believe that even if you believed in Jesus and you became saved, you still had to follow the, the customs of Moses. You still had to follow the law. They, they, they enforced that at times. Otherwise, they said you weren't truly saved. This was an argument that was going on in the time. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin, the condition of sin, is not counted where there is no law. Yet, yet, regardless of the law, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death was still there. Because death entered through sin. It's very interesting to, in verse chapter 12, sorry, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, sin did not come into the world through Satan. Satan, let me just put this, drop this little bomb in there. Satan did not have authority to bring in anything into a world that, was, that God had given that authority to man. So sin entered the world through Adam through the authority of man and man alone, through the temptation that we gave into that Satan whispered in our ears. And through that, we handed over the keys to Satan. That's what happened. We went, here you go, you can have these keys. Through our, the fact that we were no longer able to live in that garden. We were now outside the garden, which meant we lived outside of the manifest presence of God himself, and we did not have that ability to bring forward the power and authority of God. 
Now in the New Testament, as new creation beings, that all changes. That garden is no longer, uh, no longer manifested in a physical location on earth. That, that, that garden is now manifested in you. You can't be locked out of it because it's in you. And you are in it, the kingdom. Does that make, that make sense to anyone? Does that just go, oh, hang on a minute. Things are changing in my mind here. You know, we're not trying to get back into the garden, friends. God put the garden in you. The garden is actually your heart, which is not this thing that beats you. It's actually the center of your, of your very being is your, is your heart. Isn't that incredible? Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God, sorry, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for the many. So he's building up an argument. He's saying, he's saying now listen, the, the gift is actually not like the trespass. The trespass was one man creating an issue for many, but Jesus has taken an issue of many it's showing that he, through the power, can carry the multitudes. That's what it's trying to say in, in layman's terms. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, trespass death reigned through that one man, that's incredible. You see the authority God puts onto human beings. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? What's that guy's name in um, uh, Singapore? He's like a Joseph Prince. That's his key phrase, reign in life. How much more will you reign in life? Who, who's reigning in life at the moment? Like in reality, don't be afraid to say, no, I, I'm personally not reigning the way that I should be reigning in life. But we are, we are able to do so as we walk in the new nature. Most of us are not reigning in life because we don't believe we have a new nature. We still have an internal battle of an old and a new fighting against each other. And you're going to go, that's awesome, Brad, because, you know, but in Romans, and we're going to get through that Romans text today as well, where, Paul, where we see this, this so-called internal struggle as we've been taught. But I'm going to point out to you that it's not an internal struggle. It's a pre-salvation struggle. For if because, uh, I'm sorry, therefore, chapter 8, verse 18, sorry. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, I want you to understand the Hebrew, the Hebrew way of thinking is not about are you sinning or are you not sinning. It's the Hebrew understanding is this. Are you living in life or are you living in death? Are you living in light or are you living in darkness? That's the, that's the argument. We in Western Christianity make it about sin. Are you a sinner? Are you sinning? Stop sinning. Stop living in sin. That's not the argument that was ever brought forward. It was because of the condition of sin, you had, you had the ability to live in, in darkness or you had the ability to live in death. In actual fact, you lived in death because you had a nature of sin. However, because it's been taken, you now have the ability to live in life. And to live in light. We've got to change our view of sin being an action. Anything someone wants to do. I, I, I think I should be doing this and I want to, well, is it going to cause life or death? Is it going to bring light or darkness to your life? Um, well, 
mm, yeah, that's a different, that's, that's easy to answer when it's going to bring death. Then, then, you know, the, uh, then I'm not going to answer it for you, ma'am or sir. You're, you, you have answered it yourself. That's why it's funny when people come and ask leaders of churches like, for an answer. They, they, I don't know why they even ask that. I, I want to ask you, if I feel God's will, if you feel God's telling you to do something, don't even ask me about it. Because God, if God says it, do it. What they're looking for is for you to buff up their desire. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I want you to, I want you to know something. In, this, in the New Testament, the word disobedience and unbelief are used interchangeably. And so is the word obedience and belief are used interchangeably. The book of Hebrews actually assists us with that. So I, can, I could read it this way if I wanted to interpret it. So, for as by the one man's unbelief, the many were made, the many received sin. So by the one man's belief, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, this is, this is God's incredible ability to know what he's doing and to act on behalf of the people that he loves. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I love the word that he used, where sin increases, grace abounded. Like the word abound is greater than the word increase. You know what I'm saying? There's actually a song that we sing. We didn't sing it today, but we sometimes sing it. It goes, it goes, it goes a love as strong as death. Am I right? Is that what it says? There's a song we sing. It goes, um, there's a love as strong as death. And when I, when I sung that, I mean, a love as strong as I said, no, actually, that's wrong. It is a love that is stronger than death. I don't put it on the same line. I think we need to get our theology a little bit more in line with the truth of the texts. So by the, so where was I? What verse? Now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin, the condition of sin, reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. Verse 6, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Now listen to this argument. He's, now Paul is answering a question that he's perceiving they're going to ask based on the fact that the message he's preaching is actually so ridiculously good that it would, it would generate this question. And so he says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no, now he's going to build up the argument that, that that is what I want to preach on today. By no means. In actual fact, he has an explanation mark. So, so he, go, he shouts it. He goes, by no means. Don't misinterpret me here. How can we, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ or into the Messiah, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Let me just say this here with that. That points to me that something, that water baptism, which Ben will preach on sometime, is not just a symbolic act of what happened internally. 
could almost just mic drop right now, bang, and walk out of here and leave it to Ben and go on holiday. We, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ, when you see the word Christ, it's Messiah, so I might change that up a bit. In order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly, that word certainly means certainly, be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, let me explain this to you quickly. Jesus was resurrected in bodily form. And he sits in heavenly places, whatever that looks like, which we're not going to go into today. But he sits in heavenly places on a throne, which is outside of this realm. Let's put it that way. He sits outside of this realm, in his realm, in bodily form. But in a glorified body, which, which, which John saw when he was taken into the vision in heaven in, in the book of Revelations, where he was no longer a man with, with black hair and a beard, but he had white flowing hair and eyes blazing like fire. That is Jesus in bodily form. <laughs> in a glorified body. I, say, I, 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 I yearn to go down this path, but I, I shall not. We were buried therefore, uh, um, sorry. for if we, were, we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, I want you to say that, uh, we know that our old self, say old self, was, past tense, crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I love the way that it is a singular term. It is, it is not pointing towards actions, but it is pointing towards condition. For one, from verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Who died? Who gave their life to Jesus? I don't have to put up your hand. But if you've given your life to Jesus, you have stepped into him. You have actually been baptized into him. Which means that, that, that somehow, th through the mystery of God, you, you were placed into the work that he did in his death and the work that God did in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, giving you a new nature. For one who has died, verse 7 again, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Remember, before that he was saying that, that through sin, death entered. Sin is taken away. Death is also taken away. You see how the two are interlocked? Therefore, we, as born-again Christians, never die. We never die. We have eternal life. We are life. In actual fact, life is in us. True life. For the death, verse 10, chapter, sorry, verse 10 for the death he died... He died to sin once for all. Do we read like this? Once and for all, because that's how stories go. It was, and, and you know, and, and the war ended once and for all. It's like a little end to a sentence. That's how weak English is. It doesn't say he died once and for all. It says he died once, once. Jesus died once for all of humanity. 
So also, sorry, for, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself. Now, this word consider is an irritation to me. The reason why is because it's how the Reformed view puts it in there. Consider in the English language is to ponder on. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's more in the lines of it's putting the responsibility onto you to consider something. The word in the true, the true translation is the word reckon, which means to, find, to calculate. It means to come to a bottom line figure after you've done a long calculation. So I want to say it in that way because when you have to, you, know, you must also consider. So start to, start to stop your sinning. That's where that goes with that. Whereas when you reckon, it, it is that you need to get to the point where you understand that that bottom line figure cannot change. Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if you, two plus two equals, okay, that, that, is, that is what it means to reckon. Now, you can do whatever you want to do, but two plus two will always equal four. It's, it's never going to change. But if you consider it, then, then you might, you, you know, you, it, it brings it more into, you know, you need to do something about the bottom line figure. Actually, you can't. The, the calculation itself says that two plus two is four. Is that making sense? I'm trying to drive it home here. The bottom line can't change. And that's what he's saying here. So you also reckon yourself dead. It can't change. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a calculation that's been done in heavenly places. And the bottom line figure says you are dead to sin and you are alive in Christ. doesn't matter what you do with that calculation. It will never change the bottom line. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So now the condition has been taken out. However, you have a mortal body. You are, he is telling us, because you no longer have the condition of sin, don't let that condition reign in your mortal body because it no longer exists there. This is what we call the process of sanctification. The process of sanctification is nothing more than the renewing of the mind, or otherwise, a.k.a. in the Scriptures, repentance. <laughs> repentance isn't groveling in, in, in forgiveness. Repentance is changing your mind to understand the reality of truth, so when you repent, you realize that the calculation is correct. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your physical body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as, as those who have now been brought from death to life. See, there is an action, friends. The reality is there is something you have to do, not to be saved or not to be set free of sin, but there's something you have to do in the renewing of your mind through repentance that you, you now begin to reckon yourself dead and start living out of, of not the habitual patterns of what you once had in you as a sickness, sin, and now living in the freedom of life, Christ, the Spirit. In, in Colossians, Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit, you shall not gratify the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say walk by the Spirit and do not. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not. You see, we've taught it like this. You know, to live by the Spirit and, and, you, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not what the Scripture says. We, we just, we've just misinterpreted it completely. That's, a, that's not an empowering Scripture. The empowering part is this. If you live by the Spirit, you will not. Why? Because Paul goes on to say that the Spirit is opposed to the flesh and the flesh opposed to the Spirit. The two are not compatible. 
So if you live in the flesh, actually you're not going to be living in the spirit. It's, it's, it's simple mathematics. Do not present your members as sin, as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present your members, sorry, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin, for sin, will not have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. I want you to say that. Sin will not have dominion over me. Verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to life? See, the question is death and life, light and dark. But thanks, listen to this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. See, he wraps it up again. He keeps telling you that you've been set free from sin. He doesn't leave it in your hands the sin issue is not left in your hands. The, what you choose to believe is in your hands. So now he goes and he says, number nine, verse 9, he goes, Look, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity. Now he's not saying that you're a slave any longer. He's trying to use terminology so that you understand what's going on. He, and he's using it for them. He's going, so he goes, that's why he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. What Paul's saying is, if I spoke in true heavenly understanding, it, it'll be beyond your natural mind to understand what I'm saying to you. So I'm going to use a terminology. I'm going to dumb it down for you so you understand simply what I'm saying. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now I want you to present your members as slaves to righteousness, which lead, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. It's quite simple. When you were in sin, you were actually free from the ability to live in righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from those things of what you are now ashamed. I don't know about you, but I look back onto what I did when I was in BC days, and there's things I'm ashamed of. I'm like, gee, that's actually, that was horrible. Those are things that, you know, it brought no honor. I mean, we did things that were destructive. And it is, it's a, I feel ashamed of some of those things. However, I don't live in that shame. Okay, for the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, now, remember, you're not a slave to God. He's actually said, I'm trying to use human terms here so that you understand. We're actually sons, right? Now, I've heard guys go, see, it says we're slaves of God. Well, go back a few verses and actually read the text properly. I hate it when preachers pull out one text and they, they build this big argument around and you're like, listen, man, I can go back two verses and disarm, and disarm your argument. You know, read the text from the, properly, the way that's meant to be read. The, the, this is one letter. It's not meant to be read in 15 settings. You read this as one letter. You know what I mean? 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pretty comprehensive, self-explanatory. Chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers? Now, this is what I, I mentioned this last week, but it's actually it's clear to read right now. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. Oh, okay. What's the audience he's about to address? Gentiles or Jews? Are you any of you Jewish? Anyone? So you're all Gentiles, okay? Now he's gonna, so what he's gonna do is when you read this, you've got to look at it and go, oh, let me take a seat and listen in to what he's about to say to our Jewish brothers who are now coming to believe in Christ. Because none of us believed in the law. None of us had the Mosaic law given to us. None of the Gentile nations had the Mosaic law given to them. Only the Jews had it. They were the ones who accepted it and said, we shall live by it. Big mistake. They had the covenant of Abraham, or they could have entered into a new covenant, which relied on their ability to obey God in certain ways in order to gain righteousness. What a mistake. It was a quite simple choice. We'll take Abraham. But we read that back now, maybe 8,000 years, 6,000 years into the future. It's easy to look back and become quite judgmental of them. But what would we have done in those days? Probably the same as they were. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, I've, I know that, that modern-day preachers in Western Gentile nations use the law as a means to also control the church. What Paul's saying here is quite simple. Whether he's speaking to our Jewish brothers, which he is, or he's speaking to those of us who think we need to obey some form of law, he's actually saying that if, if, you, if you are a saved and you're tittling with the law, you're actually an adulteress. You're acting as an adulteress. You're acting outside of the covenant that you now have. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, same Jewish people, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, now, now I'm going to show you something here. For while, verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Now, the Reformed view, which is what I've just read now out of the ESV, says this, our sinful passions. That is not the true interpretation of that. Because what it does is it puts it on you, your sinful passions, Tim. Your sinful passions, chat. The actual correct translation is this, the motions of sin. Do you get that? One is our, I take it on, our sinful passions. I, I personalize that. The motions of sin is this, the acts, the, the symptoms of the condition. Did you get that? 
You see how the text can easily sway something to become personal towards you when it was never intended to be personal towards you. It was always intended to be a part of the old nature, which we've just heard has been put away. See, very dangerous when we start to interpret things the way we feel it should be in order to control people or direct them in the way of our doctrine. Do you get that? So we've got to read it like this. For while we're living in the flesh, the motions of sin aroused by the law were at work in our members. Now that's much easier to understand. Do you see what I mean? While we were living in the flesh, the motions of the law were sparked, sorry, the motions of sin, the motions of the condition that we had, which God's now taken, the motion of the condition we had, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now that we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now he's saying the same thing here to the Jewish people about what he just said in the chapter before to all of them together. He's, he, he spoke about sin came through, this condition came through Adam, but through Christ, you know, that condition's removed. But now he goes into something further where he goes, let me explain something to you, Jewish people. The law that you were living by was using that sin and giving it an opportunity to come up and be shown as something that was completely disgraceful. But now that we've been saved, is what he's saying, we actually re- we, we, we remove from that. Now we can serve in the new way of the Spirit. We can now serve in the way of God's Spirit rather than in the old way of the written code, the law, the legal structure that was there in place. What then shall we say? Shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He's talking to Jewish people. Remember, Gentiles did not know sin because they did not have the law. So he uses a different argument for them. He's now using an argument for Jewish people. So he goes, yet if, I, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, the condition, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me produced in me all kinds of covetousness, covetousness or whatever. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. For, for I, sorry, for, sorry, I was a, once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment, when the law came, then sin actually came alive in me. I, I, I began to realize what it was. And I died. The very commandment that promised life, because remember, everything God gives is life. The original commandment that God gave, even the commandment he gave to Adam, sorry, to, to Moses, nothing was wrong with that. What was wrong with it is that mankind had to obey that. They had to, they had to, it was the issue, God says this, when he found fault with them, not with the covenant himself. No covenant of God is bad. The condition of the covenant was, I'll give you this, which is life, but you yourselves have to obey that in order to get that life. But uh, where was I? Okay, verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved 
to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is actually holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. See, he's disarmed that argument. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin, that condition, might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, sorry, but I am of the flesh sold under the condition of sin. Then he goes, for I do not understand. Remember, he's now, what I'm about to read you, you need to understand this. Paul is not talking about his current internal issue. We know that from reading all of Paul's writings, <laughs> okay? And, and what he's just written before. Like, you can't get confused. That's why I don't understand how people read different segments and not a whole. They go, oh, well, that's my, that's my theology today, Sunday the, the 15th. This is my theology. But last week, you know, my theology was obviously different because I'm schizophrenic in the way I preach because I haven't read the text correctly. I've just taken little snippets out of it and tried to build my theology. So what he's saying, what he's about to say is he's now, he's going into this state of being, Jewish people, understand me. This is what happens when you live under the law. This is what happens when you live under the law. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Well, why does he, why does he do what he, he doesn't do what he wants because he knows that the law is good. And he wants to do what the law wants him to do because he knows it's good and it's spiritual. But he can't do it. Why? Because he has a condition of sin. <laughs> do you understand that? The Israel, let me just put this straight. Israel could not obey the law. It, they couldn't. They were doomed to fail from the moment they said, yes, we'll take it. Thank you very much. What a stupid, stupid decision. But that's what they were in. So we've got to understand that. That they, they were doomed from the start by their own stupidity. Not by the law itself, because the law just re revealed how God actually wanted us to really live in, 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 in social economic environments, bringing glory to, to, to his name by expanding his kingdom into the world. And they went, yeah, we'll achieve this righteousness by our own acts. So Paul is now taking himself, he goes, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to, but what I do, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to, then I agree with the law that it's good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now remember, we go, dwells, yes, you see, sin's still dwelling in him. I've just said to you, he's gone back to what he was living like under the law. Hence, he's talking to those people under the law. That's what you've got, you've got to read the, the, chapter, the verses before. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Why? Because I've got a nature of sin. For I have the desire to do what is right. Why? Because I'm a student of the law. Paul was a great student of the law under Gamaliel, who was a great uh, rabbi. For I have the desire, I do have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Why? Because sin sets him free from righteousness. <laughs> But righteousness sets you free from sin. For I do not, verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do 
the things that I do not want to do, then it is no longer I who is doing them, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Why does he delight in the law of God? Because it's come from God. But I see in my members another law that is waging war against the law of my mind, and it's making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to now close out the the Jewish argument, just as he closed out the Gentile argument. He goes, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Chapter 8. Therefore, there is, sorry, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's the end of his argument right there. For God has done... For God has done what the law, which was weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could not achieve what it needed to achieve because it was weakened by the flesh. The law wasn't weakened. The law was weakened by the flesh. The flesh was weakened. He did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for the condition of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, you hear the language automatically changes where he was talking about my mind was set on the things of the law to do what was good, but I could not do it because it was sin dwelling inside of me. And so the things in my mind that I knew were good, I could not achieve because of the sin that was living inside of me. He now suddenly changes his language and he goes, for those who live according to the flesh, he's now changed it according to the flesh Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. He's now removed the law aspect and he's brought in the Spirit aspect. Does that make sense? Chapter, uh, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to God. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. Remember, this body, this physical body that we currently have, in this current age, eon it's called, in this current age, this body is, is going to waste away. However, there is a new body for you. 
It's a glorified body that you will be given in the resurrection. What that looks like, I don't know. It's going to be glorified. I, 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 I don't know what I will look like, but there's going to be a, a, a physical body given to us in the resurrection. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, not to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God and daughters. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we now cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Now, let me just say that. The word Abba, Father, Abba is not the word Papa. Like, it's not more, I know that that's become a common thing. Oh, Papa, Father. The word Abba is the Hebrew Aramaic word for Father. And, and if you read, if you do a study on this, you'll actually understand. It's, it's, it's not a mushy thing. Oh, Papa, oh, my Papa, God. It's not that, as Ben pointed out. Abba, Father, is the way that the Greeks did it is they, they when they translated into Greek, is they used the, the, the Hebrew word and the word Father, the Hebrew word and the Greek word together. Abba, for the Hebrews, Father in Greek, whatever Father is in Greek, which is actually the word pap, Papa. Or, yeah, in Greek it's actually Papa. Abba, Hebrew, Papa, Greek. Don't diminish God into being Papa Smurf, and we're all frolicking around in this, this weird little life. It's just not what it's about at all. It's, it's, that just diminishes what our purpose is on, on this planet. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, which we did on the cross when I gave my life, in order that we may also be glorified with him. I want to end it there. It's, it, I can go on and on and on through the book of Romans, and I've done a whole teaching, a whole series at Crossing Point through the book of Romans. What I want to say to you is this. Through just reading those three chapters, it's quite simple to understand that there was this nature we were given that we inherited through Adam and his disobedience to what God had asked him to do. Through that, the sickness entered into you. It was a condition called sin. And the symptoms of that sin outplayed itself through the history of mankind from that day forward. And we saw it in destruction after destruction after destruction. Symptoms like addiction. Symptoms like jealousy, which we call the acts of the flesh. But in Christ, if you have been born again, what happens is you are now placed into him. And that sin, that nature of it, has actually been condemned by God. And Jesus going into the grave took you with him into that grave and he only died once and shall never die again. But the amazing, the amazing truth is that he has actually brought back to life in the physical body, but when he came back to life, that nature of sin was left in the grave. And you with him have now been given a new nature, just, how he, just the same nature as what he actually has. And, and, and your lowly Bodies that we currently have will be renewed at the resurrection with new bodies that are glorified. 
where we will live on this planet, a new planet, which wouldn't look like this. It might have some similarity, but it'll be a new planet that God will create because he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth on which, in which we will reign the way we're intended to reign in complete and absolute harmony with God. And Satan, with all of the demons that fell with him, will be placed into what we call the lake of fire, never to exist again. Therefore, there can be no further temptation like what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. And that is what we will live in for all of eternity, never ending. Which our minds cannot compute because we only understand time. But within the time that God created, because we saw he created the, the sun and the moon and the stars, which speak about time. So God created time. We have to sit through the time that God created before all of that takes place. And I don't understand what that all looks like. But one thing I do know is this. It will be absolutely glorious. And we can start living now in redeeming mankind and the planet while we are here right now until such time that the trumpet blows and the Son of Man returns as he shall, okay, and he consummates this age and that new heaven and new earth begins to manifest. But for now, you are free of sin and you have a new creation. So you no longer have to give into the temptations. You can actually live free of being a slave to that condition because you've been cured. Yeah, you've been cured of that sickness. The antidote, which is Jesus, was given. And the new life came. Amen? Isn't that fantastic? Who wants to live in that freedom? Put your hand on your head, not your heart. Because I think your heart, if you're born again, is just fine. But your head is just not right. It is. So we ask, Father, if you put our hands on our heads, we ask that you would anoint our, our minds and you would help us to repent, metanoia, so that our minds are renewed to the reality of the truth of what you've done. That we would align our mindset with the new creation life. We will set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And in doing so, we will walk by the Spirit. And in doing so, we will no longer gratify the desires of the flesh, but we will rather gratify the desires of you, Father, to live out your ways where we are in perfect relationship with you, where we are enjoying our life and relationship with you, and that will manifest in our life with each other, where we enjoy our life with each other, and where we enjoy living our life among our unsaved people who we are supposed to bring a redemptive message to through the way we live in freedom. May they see the joy that we live in, even in difficult times, because you didn't promise to take away difficult times until the new earth is created and heaven and earth are in perfection with each other. Until then, we live in a destructive world, but we live in a place of peace. We live in a place of joy. We live in a place of love. And because of that, it manifests to those around us and they are drawn towards you because of the life that we live which reveals and reflects the new creation. That is evangelism 101. Father, I pray that we would be set free and begin to see this life manifest so that you would be glorified and lifted up in the eyes of all of the world. We ask this in the name, the nature, the character, and the authority of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you for listening. I know it's a lot. There's, there's, this is 
You can never do justice in a Sunday, in a Sunday sermon. I've learned that time and time again. But number one, look for yourself. Read for yourself. Make notes for yourself. Argue with yourself. Go and find where there's text, which I had to do, that, that go against what I'm trying to preach, and then begin to look at those texts properly and mine through those texts properly. And everything we do, remember this, everything that happens through mankind from the day that we, we fell is always filtered through, through the lenses of fallenness. Okay? Jesus is the perfect picture of God. He is the exact representation of God the Father himself. So whatever I interpret, I have to look at Jesus as the representation of God when I want to argue against the goodness of God, when I want to argue against the love of God, when I want to show that God is a, a angry tyrant, um, when, when I look at how God so-called acted in the Old Testament, I, I have to look at Jesus first and foremost as the exact representation of God and not man's interpretation of what we perceive God to be. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That's why Jesus is the most important character in all of the Bible, besides God the Father himself. But Jesus is God. Like, that's, that's, a, that's a phenomenal truth. Jesus is God. And, 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 that, and he represents the exact nature of our Father. And so every time I look at the old, I have to look at Jesus and go, okay, I, I see how Jesus is, and then I interpret everything that I see in him. For he is the Word. He, he's not the Scriptures. Jesus is the Word. That The Scriptures point to the Word. Do you see what I'm saying? The Scriptures reveal the Word. Everything was created in him, through him, from him, for him, towards him. So we have to look at him in everything. I have to put Jesus into that, into that, into that picture in order to understand the true, the true text. Okay? And if you have questions, honestly, write them down. There's home groups you guys go to. Ask the questions. Mull through them. Have your little discussions. Have your disagreements. Have your arguments. Write stuff down. If you want to come and talk to me, don't come in an accusatory way because I'm not going to, honestly, I'm not going to, you won't even get anywhere with me. I'll just walk away from you. That's just the way I'm going to deal with it. I will. But if you come and say, man, I want to know this, Brad, write it down. I don't have time to talk, you know, four hours right there and then, but I could go away and script something up in an email and maybe send it to you or if we do have time to sit and talk. But because we want to help you. We want to help you understand truth. Uh, we, we do, we, I've done this for a long, long time, sitting with people and discussing over and over and over and over again, going through the scriptures, the difficult ones at times. But when we go through it and we mind that truth and you find it, I tell you what, the freedom that you have is just phenomenal. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's, it's spectacular. It's the way that you're meant to be. It's called inexpressible joy. Amen? So Benny will take it over next week, and I will see you the following week after that to finish off this series. Thanks for listening. Tea and coffee and biscuits and stuff. <laughs>